Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast, where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income, and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach, and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest, and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast with me, Pete Wargent. I'm here with Stephen Moriarty. G'day, Steve. G'day, Pete. How are you? I'm good. It's our first socially distanced podcast, uh, not in the studio today, first time. So uh, we'll try and keep the uh, the banter flowing as normally as possible, despite <laughs> the distance. So uh, let's see how we go. So Swearing to a minimum. <laughs> exactly. So today we're going to speak about something quite topical, bubbles. So um, I remember reading some years ago, uh, I think it was Scott Sumner, US economist, saying that uh, we'd be heading into an era of bubbles because low real interest rates and people would be spotting bubbles everywhere. But I think part of the problem, Steve, is that there's no real widely understood definition of what a bubble actually is. So for today's episode, we're going to talk about what uh, bubbles actually are and in turn, what we should actually do about identifying bubbles, if anything, and how we should invest. Yeah, it's an interesting question because when we were, you know, chatting about bubbles and putting the notes together, the funny question was a bit like, actually, yeah, what is a bubble? And part of it is um, the definition. I think it was Jeremy Grantham who said, any, uh, I think it was two standard deviations above the average is a bubble, but, you know, like what, for one year, two years or three years? Howard Marks also sort of talked about saying that, Uh, price didn't matter. Robert Schiller said bubbles are basically a a psychology in the sense that the bubble was when people would buy something, price didn't matter, Howard Marks and stuff, but then would just, there was sort of some sort of euphoria attached with it. Interestingly enough, it's always been fairly sort of controversial about is there a bubble? Um, Part of the reason why is if you look at it from an individual perspective, everybody, most people are making money when there's a bubble. So, you know, nobody really wants to go, oh, yeah, things are like crazy. You know, everybody's sort of like, hey, mate, I'm making lots of money. Who cares if there's a bubble? If you go back through the history of bubbles, uh, the famous ones like the Tulip or the South Sea bubble, I think it's generally understood that if you've got an asset that is clearly become dislocated from its intrinsic value, and um, people are speculating and not wanting to be the last person holding the bag, and then it goes to zero. I mean, that's quite clearly an instance of a bubble, but it seems to have become a broader term now for almost any market that goes up and then subsequently goes down again. So maybe that's where there's a, a bit of a lack of clarity in the modern sense. I think people mistake a boom, or not mistake, that's probably not the right word, but people use bubble where they should use boom. And what I mean by that is a bubble is something that, in, in my mind, it's things are really crazy, right? And it's sort of, if, I think a bubble can only be seen 
if you're outside the bubble, not inside it. You know, like in politics in Australia, they talk about the Canberra bubble, i.e. you're inside it. An outsider sees a bubble differently. And interestingly enough, you know, what I say before about the, the definition, I think it was Alan Greenspan and said something about, oh, you know, there's no such thing as a bubble. And the idea behind that or the theory behind that was our old friend, the efficient market hypothesis, which said all the prices are an accurate reflection of the value. And so, therefore, you couldn't get a bubble because all investors were rational and had the same information. Eugene Farmer, who was the the, uh, the efficient market hypothesis sort of number one promoter in, a, in some senses, said, I don't know what a credit bubble means. I don't even know what bubble means. And so that, again, leads back to the point of saying, well, if everybody's rational and the market price is accurate, then there's actually no such thing as a bubble because things can't get out of hand. I think the efficient market hypothesis is a, I think it's a useful concept. So even if it's not technically accurate, I think you, I think it's fair to yep. say that uh, market prices relatively, uh, relatively quickly will ex- expect uh, or reflect investors' yep. expectations. But clearly, prices can't be accurate all of the time because it, it's clear to see you know, through history we've got all kinds of cases where there's been some very irrational behavior so I think it I think you said in a previous episode that uh, the crowd is usually usually right but it can be wrong at the top and wrong at the bottom and I think yeah, that, yeah. that's where I think that's where EMH can be a useful concept um, it's relatively hard to beat the market from day to day uh, and it's very difficult to time markets but uh, clearly, there are cases where if you pay too much, you can get yourself into trouble. Yeah, I think so. I, I, look, the, I think the, it's sort of ironic, but the value of the efficient market hypothesis is, in, in my mind, and not everybody will agree with this, is that I think it tells you when things are crazy. Basically sort of saying, look, things have got out of hand because we know if things weren't out of hand, this is what they'd look like. Um, if you can sort of follow that logic. So it's sort of like saying, look, if the market was normal, and this is where things like the CAPE ratio are really useful, because if you know the long-term CAPE is, say, 17, then if the CAPE is at 35, you'd sort of look at that and go, that's a little crazy. Now, people can disagree that the market's in a bubble, but at least what you're what you're saying is, well, with the CAPE's drawing on a, a long history of evidence that shows that if the market grew rationally, you know, quote, unquote, under the efficient market hypothesis, we should be at, you know, for argument's sake, 2,000, and we're currently at four. Okay, that means things have, you know, got completely out of hand. And so I think in that sense, that is where the efficient market hypothesis is sort of useful um, in determining whether things are really, you know, easy or not. What do you say to people who say, okay, well, if we're going to have um, zero interest rates for a decade, uh, therefore a CAPE ratio of maybe 30 or 35 is more justified? I suppose the counter-argument might be, well, we're not going to be in a high-growth environment over the next decade potentially, and therefore paying way too much for stocks is still a bad idea. What what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, 
Benjamin Graham said, you know, now be 100 years ago, Benjamin Graham sort of talked about uh, the level of interest rates and the broadly agreed idea is, oh, interest rates are low so companies are worth more. But the argument is, well, okay, but interest rates are low because the economy's not doing very well. And if the economy's not doing very well, well, companies are not doing very well. So there's that argument there. The second one I think is more convincing. I always go back to these arguments of saying it's a it's a little bit like the uh, Talebian black swan stuff, which is saying, well, hang on, if there's one black swan, that means you can't say all swans are white. And what I mean by that is saying if you have a look at the stock market history, I think it's 45, 1945 to about 1965, interest rates went, went up and so did the stock market. According to the theory, the stock should get better as rates fall. But my argument is the flip, flip side of that. My argument is, well, hang on, stocks should rise when interest rates are rising because interest rates are rising says you've got a buoyant economy. And so, therefore, companies are, are getting better. The, the second part of that is the more interesting aspect is in about 44 or 45, the CAPE ratio was really low. So, again, I always look at valuation rather than which is what we've got going on at the moment. You know, like, oh, we've got really low interest rates and that's why stocks are better and worth more. Well, that doesn't make any sense to me because as I said, of the history. Um, if history was different, then I'd sort of go, okay, well, that's a valid argument. But even just, you just sort of say, well, if interest rates at the moment are really low, it's because the economy is doing really badly. And if, you'd hardly expect to say, oh, well, things are absolutely spectacular. You know, as you know, things are really bad. How can you have a stock market booming? And a lot of it is predicated, as you sort of mentioned before, simply on that point of, oh, well, everybody says that when rates are low, stocks are high. So it ties into that Schiller stuff about a little bit like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, oh, stocks are doing well. Why? Because rates are low. Oh, okay. Therefore, I should jump into the stock market. Absolutely. Price goes up. Why are stocks going up? Oh, because interest rates are low. And so it becomes, you know, just this roundabout thing. And if you think about it, 2020 in Feb, the market crashes 30 or 35%. Well, interest rates were really low and that didn't stop it crashing 35%. So again, the argument might be, oh yeah, but it bounced back, you know, from there. Okay, that's fine, but that doesn't that doesn't negate the argument of saying, yeah, but it fell 35%. You know, if rates were low, well, you'd, you'd have low volatility and it'd just be a constant, you know, bottom left to the top right. Yeah, I think it's, um, uh, I was making a few notes earlier and you sent me some notes and I, I think one of the, the things that stood out to me is that every asset, whether it's a, a property or a stock or an oil painting, that has to be owned by somebody at all times. And yeah. therefore the question yeah. is, well, what is, what's the actual price and what's the value? And if you end up paying too much, well, you, know, you, you could easily lose a lot of money or at the very least. Um, you might just get very poor returns. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, one of the famous bubbles, the, the tech bubble um, in the late, late 90s and at the turn of the century, uh, because we seem to be having uh, some echoes of that right now with people piling into yeah. 
the new technology and so on. Um, I guess the, one of the counter arguments I hear against uh, the idea that you can identify bubbles is that the, the Nasdaq um, Composite Index, people, um, they, they often point to the very peak of the market, but if, that realistically, the market only really traded at, at that level for a handful of days. And probably most of the time during the, the bubble period was at three or four thousand. But if 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 the if the index today is at say twelve, well, what does that say about the bubble at three to four thousand twenty years ago? Yeah, the index at twelve. Which one? The um, the Nasdaq the today. NASDAQ? So yeah, I mean uh, clearly, yeah, yeah, I mean yeah. the market suffered an enormous drawdown at the, from the peak of the the tech yeah. wreck or the tech bubble. Um, but today is much higher. So is that an argument in favour of saying, well, potentially it's harder to spot these bubbles than people think? Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I was reading something the other day. Where was it? Oh, it's in a book. And what's happened now is bubbles in the in the historically used to be quite rare. And they were quite rare because not everybody had access to the characteristics, one being access to money, to actually create a bubble. And so these guys said, look, the, there was three aspects to it. One was you had to have marketability of the, the asset class, right? So it's a bit like, you know, oh, equities are fantastic. We can market equities. Okay. And you get that in property, right? You get property booms, you know, that sort of thing. Limited land, immigration, blah, blah, blah. The second part of it was that you had to have access to money and credit. And in the old days, as you know, we always talk about stocks were bought by wealthy people to generate income and security. So they weren't traded as such, you know, on, on the capital gain. That really came about once banks were given the tick to start lending to, you know, the masses, so to speak, the, the lower classes, dare I say. And so, again... That was, that was also part of Hyman Minsky's argument. He said when banks have finished lending to all the, the solid customers, then they, they, they ratchet down and lend to those who might be a bit iffy, so to speak. And the last one was the, the bubble was intense speculation, right? And that is what I think personally from what I've seen is what is matching exactly the criteria we've got today in generally the IT sector. And again, this fits in with Schiller's stuff about, you know, we're in a new world. And I think you and I have talked this in, in the previous podcasts about you see these themes that run through. And again, these guys, um, what's their name? They, they call oh, Quinn and Turner, boom, boom and bust. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they took, they say, look, there's two, there's basically two things that um, trigger a bubble. One is the government uh, regulations and the other one is technology. And the dot-com bubble, obviously, was technology surrounded by uh, the internet. The land boom and bubble in America in the, in the early 2000s with Clinton was because what Clinton said was, we want more people to own a home. So off they went. And this one is now being driven by technology. Um, and so you've got the, you know, the story with all the unicorns, right? You know, Tesla's going to be, you know, Tesla's worth every other car company put together. Okay, yeah, well, that's valid because, you know, they're the future. And it's a bit like, okay, 
but I don't think they're going to be selling, you know, 25 zillion cars throughout the whole world. And so what you see is in that particular sector, you get these outrageous valuations. And again, it just ties back to if you're an insider, it makes complete sense, right, because you're inside and you're making money from it. So you've generally got this bias. If you're an outsider, it looks absolutely mad dog crazy. It feeds on itself, you know. Like if you have a look at the things we've got going at the moment, you know, Bitcoin, Tesla, robotics, AI, Zoom, you know, because of COVID, all this sort of stuff, that's where no one, no one's saying, yeah, but is the price actually justified? Mm, I think the, the potential you know, for I, a I, tech wreck, when you're looking at what has happened to tech stocks over the past oh, 10 to 10 or 11, 12 years, um, the potential for a, a major uh, market event there is uh, seems uh, particularly high <laughs> at the moment. There's, there's a lot yeah. of, as you said, uh, well, if you look at Quinn and Turner's criteria, marketability, well, that's just expanded um, to unprecedented levels. You know, more and more people have yeah. got access to stocks now. Um, credit expansion, yeah. not so much in the wider economy. Uh, credit growth has been quite low, but um, the use of leverage within markets is definitely there. And intense speculation, well, gosh, we've seen some of that in recent times. So I think one of the, the challenges with bubbles, because I, I can remember articles about Bitcoin being a bubble at $30 and then at $300 and then at $3,000 and today it's at $18,000. So obviously calling the timing on these things is pretty hard. You mentioned um, the sort of yeah. uh, the, the potential for property and land booms and bubbles. Um, that's obviously an interesting area and an, an area of interest to me. And, uh, you know, we, we often um, hear a lot about the UK housing bubble, but, uh, you know, my experience of that, it was, you know, people were calling a bubble on the way up for a long, long time. Um, I can certainly remember in the late 1990s, uh, people talking about a bubble. and It finally peaked, I think, in 2007, and uh, prices in London probably fell from, you know, broadly speaking, three hundred thousand to two fifty. Uh, but then today they'd be above four hundred. So potentially harder to pick the timing on some of these things than it than it seems in hindsight, at least. In property, I think um, in some of your show notes you mentioned how, uh, particularly in glamour cities in uh, Canada or potentially uh, places like Sydney or other such popular markets that's where you get the potential for really intense um, speculation i've got i pulled up a chart of the the history of um, sydney house prices and it, it's interesting when you look back there's no real um certainly if you don't if you go back over 100 years there's no really big drops in there uh, but you do get some very long periods of little or negative growth yeah. i think from 2003 to about 2009 there was just there was a modest decline, and then just nothing really happened for a very long period of time. While um, the uh, the market caught up with itself, I think in property, uh, a lot of the real bubbles are often related to uh, zoning constraints, and that can create a boom. But then often the speculation somehow uh, shifts into markets where there are no zoning constraints. That was certainly a big feature of the U.S. housing bubble. It, it went inland. It went to regional and rural markets. And we did see a bit of that 
in Australia too through the mining boom. Um, I think you know we put uh, towns in the middle of nowhere where people were paying crazy prices. Uh, so I think that's a yeah, feature yeah. of housing housing bubbles where the, the speculation, as as you've said in previous episodes, you you can uh, speculate intelligently in markets, but uh, often it shifts into parts of the market where um, the speculation is is irrational and dangerous. When it's in a bubble, the hard part's actually selling because you know you get the you get the the FOMO of of missing out on profits, even though you might be up you know, well and truly in terms of, of your original cost. But, yeah, the, a lot of the um, – Schiller talks about property bubbles being in um, international cities, you know, Sydney, London, Paris, uh, that sort of thing, because they're, they're glamour places and it's where wealthy people want to own all the property or want to own, you know, a property. And so it tends to drive a, it tends to drive a bit of a narrative. Um, one interesting thing I got out of the – which I thought was absolutely fascinating, was in uh, Quinn and Turner's book, they talk about the Australian land boom in the 1880s in Melbourne, and which turned into a bubble. And property prices went up like five or six times in four years or something. It, it was just unbelievable. I, I just kept reading it going, yeah, that's like today. Oh, yeah, that's like today. Oh, that's like today. Yeah, that's like today. And I kept going back to in Sydney and Melbourne at the moment, and this, you know, feel free to disagree, um, property because property is not my, you know, expertise, but simply saying the, the, the characteristics of a bubble were, you know, lower regulation. Yep, well, that's what happened. Even they had a royal commission back then that said, no, 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 everything's fine. And in fact, you should lower interest rates. They lowered interest rates. And what happened? Boom, you know, this sort of thing. Heaps of people started up real estate investment companies, you know, to flog off land. Yep, that's been done. So the, my point being, if someone said, what is a bubble? Most of us sort of default to a valuation, you know, like, oh, well, it should be 17, that's 25. Um, and as you said, it can go to 44. So, you know, that's a you can be a long time waiting on the sideline. The trick, I think, is to say, what are the characteristics of a bubble? And so you like we're saying with Quinn and Turner, is there a is there a, a high visibility on you know uh, equities? Uh, yes, there is. Okay, well, there's the first part. Are people leveraging equities, uh, leveraging to buy equities? Yes, they are. Right, okay. Well, that's a characteristic of a bubble. What about the third part? Is there investor, you know, speculation? Okay, yes, because we've now got, you know, 21-year-old pimply guys with Robin Hood accounts, you know, trading stock options. That's investor speculation, you know. So, again, people might say, well, yeah, but it's justified because the PE is X or, you know, that's sort of like fundamental number stuff, whereas you, you, can, you can flip that and say, I understand that. But according to all the characteristics of a bubble, that's what we got going on. One of the issues with the emerging markets, uh, sorry, efficient markets hypothesis and looking at valuations is that there's kind of a false expectation out there that every investor in the market has the same motivations and time horizon yeah. that you do. For example, you, know, you might be a long-term passive investor in, in the stock market, but it 
it doesn't necessarily mean that it's irrational for a hedge fund to uh, chase returns over a three-month time horizon if that's what yeah, yeah, yeah. the mandate is. Uh, I think uh, going back to the property example you mentioned there, well, it, even though Sydney prices may not have shifted all that much really over the past three or four years, but I can think back to, um, say, 2013, 2014, and there was a period there where um, there was a lot of um, Chinese money coming into the market. And a lot of the people yeah. were, were buying off-the-plan apartments in bigger suburbs, somewhere like Epping, and there were entire developments selling out to Chinese investors. Now, a lot of those units will be worth less today than they were, than was paid for them in 2014. But um, yeah. that's not to say that for those investors, maybe their motivation wasn't a rental yield or capital growth. In a lot of cases, it was simply shifting funds out of China. It was capital flight. And that's a, just an example of where in the wider markets, um, things may be somewhat different. But you can certainly see instances where the investors themselves don't have the same motivations. And therefore, for them, it might have been a sensible decision at that time. Yeah, I think so. I think it gets back to what you were saying before about you know, if you think about it, and it's a really interesting point, you, you sort of go, oh, well, you never drive past a property and go, oh, yeah, nobody owns that property, right? Somebody, as you said before, has got to own the asset, um, whether it's a stock of a company or whether it's a, a property um, or a piece of art or a vintage car or a stamp collection or something. And so, again, then the next logical step is sort of saying, well, the the question is, what's the price you paid for it and what can you sell it for? If you think about it, Pete, through the cycle, which we talk about market cycles, somebody's got to be left holding the bag, right? You know, somebody's got to be be left holding um, a property that they bought at a million that's now only worth 700000 Now, they can say, okay, well, you know, I'll hold it for 15 or 20 years and that's okay, but you still can't say that you made money out of it. And the tendency, what you said before about the the unit developments, I remember in Melbourne where they were basically saying you can only sell 50% of the units to Chinese buyers, i.e. if I build up 100 units, I know I can flog them to the Chinese people. Part of that was because we were having the mining boom. So there was, you know, there was plenty of Australian dollars floating around that had to go and buy Australian assets. And that, again, came back to the the Chinese saying, well, what can we buy? Well, you can buy new apartments. Let's build new apartments. So, you know, again, it sort of fits it quite well with the, the Quinn and Turner idea of saying it's a government regulation that drives a bubble. It just depends on, you know, what the regulations allow them to do. Yeah. So next, um, in the next episode, we're going to talk about how how to spot bubbles and what you should do about it accordingly. I think um, so. You've mentioned some of the potential areas where they can pop up today. So I already mentioned the sort of the theme type bubbles, the new era dot com. So we've seen plenty of that recently with um, the working from home stocks boom and some of these yeah. new sort of beyond meat was a, a good one and we work and some of those others. Um, yeah, but, yeah. but I think in history, sometimes you've seen country bubbles, which um, continue to yep. rise for a long period of time, and then suddenly something happens, uh, often in the emerging markets, and bang, they just they just fall apart. 
but also uh, yeah. sector bubbles as well, usually IT, but sometimes potentially commodities. You know, we're, Australia had plenty yes. of that going on during the mining boom, but probably less so yeah. in some of the more mature sectors. Is that a fair call? Yeah, yeah, I think so, Pete. And again, um, Schiller talks about the new era. Commodities are not sexy. As in like, hey, it's a new era of iron ore. It's like, uh, no. But we did, as you know, we did have a bit of a commodity super cycle there. But, yeah, generally it's more in the the, the new areas, um, you know, unicorns, those sort of things. Like you said, Beyond Me, Afterpay, um, you know, great company, no argument. But is it worth the price? I don't, you know, what I'm saying is I don't really know, but, gee, I don't want to be paying a PE of, you know, 500 uh, because it might be a great company, but that doesn't mean it can't be in a bubble. One I remember years ago, and we'll talk <laughs> I'll, I'll do a mere culpa on um, the bubble I got caught in years ago was, you know, a, a stock that I bought at about 45 cents went to about $2.50, I think, or something. And, you know, there I was making dreams of, you know, living aside, uh, living in the Cayman Islands with, you know, um, servants. And um, naturally enough, uh, the bubble burst and, um, you know, I ended up losing a lot of money and it, 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 so from personal experience, I know what it's like, you know, and I can tell you it is really hard when you are inside a bubble, whether it's a, whether it's a country or a sector or a, a single company. Even when people say, mate, you know, this company doesn't make any money and, um, you know, it's, it's got this and it's got that, You're, it's like a cocaine brain, you know. You just can't see how it can fail and inevitably it does you know the, the the bubble subsides and a lot of the problem i can tell you is even when it's sinking people think that it's an opportunity to get in and buy the dip you know which makes it twice as bad so you know it's the smart ones usually the older the older investors who can see a bubble and who are calm enough to say i can get in here and make money and get out before you know before losing my money? Plenty of instances there of single company bubbles, I think, at the moment. Um, so, and as you said, often in, in IT and commodities, I think I've, I've had some personal experience during the, the mining boom years when all the usual criteria, really, friends around you, work colleagues, they're all, uh, they're all having a yeah. go themselves, making quick cash. And it's, it's difficult to sit on the <laughs> sidelines when everyone else is doing that. I think um, to wrap up on today's piece, Steve, before we move on uh, next week to look at um, how to spot bubbles and how to avoid them, um, or at least how to avoid being caught in them, um, I, th- I think the, the, the efficient markets hypothesis has some value. I think it's a useful concept, but I think it's, I mean, it's clearly not technically true. Uh, markets can't be efficient all of the time. And the most important thing is... Um, understanding your motivations, time horizons, and particularly not overpaying for assets. Because even if you uh, can't identify when a market will peak or when it will bottom out, um, even just taking a step back and saying, does this make sense, can can, uh, really help you to avoid some of that pain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why bubbles generally, and I'm, I'm speaking, you know, without a lot of evidence here, but bubbles are generally sustained by new investors coming in, you know, the ones who you can sell a story to. The older, wiser heads have been through bubbles 
know that the stories are similar, you know, and like Quentin Turner talked about, you know, marketability, you know, speculation, money and credit, blah, 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 um, or Robert Schiller talks about or Howard Marks talks about, you know, you don't get 21-year-olds writing about bubbles, you know, because they're usually getting in them, not realising that they, they can't get out of them. Um, and like you say, everything makes sense because it's, it's about the future. Valuations don't matter. You know, dot-com stuff was about clicks, not bricks, you know, all that sort of stuff. And at, at the time, it sounds feasible, you know, and we've got that at the moment with work from home, you know, all those sorts of things. So once you've been through one, I can tell you, you'll never forget about it. Um, and it makes it pretty easy to spot the others. Yeah, I think as a as a Brit, the uh, probably the the biggest and closest to home example I've seen was um, in the run up to two thousand and seven. I mean, I personally know maybe half a dozen people who owned uh, new or off the plan uh, properties in Spain, and you just look back and think, right. how is it oh, even yeah. possible? You know, how is it even possible that yeah. um, people I know who are tradies, carpenters, plumbers, you know, no interest in property generally, and and yet. Even in my small network of people, I know multiple occasions, um, you know, taxi drivers, you know, people who, who got into buying in, into that asset class simply because other people were doing it, making quick quick money. And in, I think almost in every single case, those assets were worth zero. And I think particularly yeah. in property, I mean, that's a good, another good case in point where zoning constraints and cheaper money uh, drive asset prices higher, but then the speculation moves into whole other sectors of the market where there is no zoning. And it, in many cases in Europe, it, there were subsequently legal issues about you know, whether stuff could or should have been built on various sites. And a lot of stuff never got built, ended up with yeah. states that, well, ghost housing estates in Ireland. And it, it just, it kind of spread like a contagion uh, well beyond the, the typical bricks and mortar type of investment. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember, it's funny, I remember that, you know, the island experience and the Spanish experience where they built, they basically built whole towns that were empty, mm. you know, and you sort of, like you say, you sort of go, really, how can, you know, surely somebody would have seen that and called it. As I said at the start, you know, it's just everybody's making money, so it's like, hey, somebody's going to get hold, holding the bag, and if it's not me, I don't mind, you know, mm. and unfortunately that's really a lot of it especially in the, in the, if you're in the industry. You know, it's hard to say I'm making lots of money and I'm going to warn people that they shouldn't buy property or, you know, these bubbles, are, uh, equity bubbles have gone crazy. Oh, please, don't give me your money to, you know, to buy stocks for you. It's like, I mean, you know, it runs pretty hard against the grind. You wouldn't be yeah, lasting too long. Yeah, and also when people, um, you know, they heard all the bubble calls in 1998, 99, 2000, you know, six or seven years of gains later yeah, yeah. on. So people say, well, you know, nobody can predict this stuff. Yes, and, yeah. Uh, money becomes very loose. It certainly was in Europe. Um, you could borrow 100% in many cases. So people thought, well, it was a bit sort of easy come, easy go uh, with lending at that time. And, um, yeah, we all know the consequences. So thanks for yeah. today, Steve. So next week we'll talk about um, how to identify bubbles and, and how to invest accordingly. Uh, so thanks for joining everyone. And, uh Look forward to speaking next week. Cheers. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. 
just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.